dear friends, thank you for uh, coming back for the afternoon sessions. We have uh, a great uh, Roberto. How are you? We have a great um, series of topics and panels for you, but we're going to start with uh, a terrific presentation by Dr. Martin Stopford. Uh, I don't think that I need to introduce uh, Martin. Martin is so well known, and all I want to say is that uh, I am, uh, on behalf of Capital Link, we are grateful and gratified that uh, he came uh, to be with us today and deliver a keynote presentation. So, Martin, thank you very much. Uh, it's a privilege to have you with us. Your presentation always knock out, so we can't wait uh, for you to take over. Well, there's nothing like starting out from a, with, a, with a low bar, you know. Um, so, um, shipping in the era of change. I, I thought to get me started, I, I'd ask you a question. How, how do you make a pie? Let's say, for example, a steak and kidney pie, which is um, supposed to be one of the UK's only real um, gastronomic recipes, um, although most Americans can't stand it. Um, but if you want to, the first thing you have to do to make the pie is you get a list of ingredients. I've got some here. You get some kidney, some beef, some flour, some suet, some butter, some onions, herbs, garlic, and stock. And then um, the next thing you do, if you're me, is you put it all in the food processor and you mix it up for half for about two minutes and you pour it into a bowl and you put it in the oven. Um, and I'm sorry to say that what comes out <laughs> is probably a sort of solid lump of rather unappetizing stringy beef, you know. Um, and I think that really um, takes me into the question of where we're going to go in, in the shipping industry, because I, I would say, having sat through the, the really fantastic panels this morning, um, all, the, all the issues, all the ingredients for the recipe are on the table. They're there now. Um, you might decide afterwards you don't really like garlic, but nevertheless, you know, you can have some uh, fa fancy fuels if you like it. The big question is how we cook the pie. And uh, so that's what I'm, what I'm going to try and do. I don't think I have much new to say in terms of the ingredients, but I'm going to try and talk a little bit about the pie that the shipping industry is going to bake in the next few years. Um, and I'm going to do this in four stages. I'll give you a preview because I know um, Nicholas always provides a countdown clock, which and you get a bit nervous towards the end. So um, if I haven't finished, at least... That means that you know what I was going to say. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you've got to keep to your timetable. Energy scenarios 2020 to 2050 show one very clear conclusion, um, which I think Dr. Narvik introduced us to first thing this morning, which is that there's going to be a green energy gap. We don't know how long it'll last, but there is going to be a, a gap. The second thing is... Um, we got two sort of magic bullets, um, which might just plug that gap quite nicely. Um, first of all is nuclear, which looks as though it might work quite well for shipping. Uh, it's an option, 
It's an ingredient you might put in so that everybody would like it. And um, the other is geothermal energy, which is sort of creeping onto the scene and no doubt will have many difficulties, but is worth bearing in mind, not because you can do geothermal drilling from a ship, God forbid, but you, um, you actually might find that the geothermal energy takes the pressure off the supply of green fuels, so it's worth keeping an eye on that. The third one is fleet investment, um, which I think you, know, you might as well accept is going to be risky. Um, we've, the last... You know, the last 30 years, it's, it's, the strategy has been pretty straightforward. You didn't need to spend that much time doing your corporate plan. You know, you, um, you, you ordered a ship when it was cheap. Um, you, got, you ordered it slightly bigger than the last one. And you uh, cut your costs so that you could get through any recessions that come. And you tried to get the bank to make, take as much of the risk as you possibly could, you know. And that was a very work. You were supposed to laugh after that. But obviously it was I'm not getting a laugh, you know. Um, the, um, the, the, the joke was supposed to be that you tried to get the banks to take the risk. But um, <laughs> uh, I guess it's so obvious it's not worth mentioning, you know. <laughs> Um, the, um, so the, it's going to be risky. And finally, the, the fourth is um, that you do need some sort of... Every company is going to need some sort of voyage plan to 2050, which is, not, which is more substantial than you've had in the past. And we've just had some very good comments this morning on that, that particular score. And finally, this all takes us into the question of governance and who is actually responsible for making the, the, the pie. You know, it's, you know, it's easy to point at IMO. Is it really IMO that's going to the, run the show? Uh, or is there a responsibility somewhere else? So that's, that, that, that's what I'm going to try and scoot through. So some of the slides I'm sure you'll have seen before, um, but uh, so I'll pass over them quite quickly and you can get the slides afterwards. But if we start off with the whole question of where green energy is going to come from, um, that the, the, the current outlook is that the global energy demand for green fuels is going to be very high indeed. And uh, again, Dr. Narvik um, uh, you know, showed that one quite clearly. The, uh, the big agencies are saying that population is going to keep growing uh, the 25% uh, by 2050. Uh, we move nearly two tons per capita, so that's you know a big chunk of trade just to keep up with the growth of the population. And GDP could double, uh, and so really, there's you know there's there's some sort of pressure, at least initially, on shipping to have enough capacity to deal with this. Uh, if we look at the actual growth of energy consumption, uh, consumption the the blue line here is the energy from fossil fuels, which has been growing very steadily at about 3% per annum. It, had a, it wobbled in the 1980s as a result of the first oil crisis, but it's, you know, it's, it's been up at 3% per annum. And the uh, renewables down the bottom, the, the, the number three is nuclear, which is a fair bit and declining. Number four is... Um, uh, uh, solar, uh, solar, and number five is wind. And those, at the moment, are only a very small percentage of the total electricity consumption. 
And if we take a look at um, where we're going on this, the, I, I pulled this out of a BP forecast, which they published in July. Um, it's not precise because they were a bit coy about the numbers. You had to extract them from little tables at the back. But um, I think these are roughly what they're saying for their accelerated case, which is quite an optimistic case, actually. And under that, the, um, the green, the fossil fuels come down. But as was very clearly agreed this morning, um, they're going to be underpinning the energy supply for a long time to come. And we have this enormous increase in solar and wind. Uh, and even on this scenario, um, there's going to be a, a green energy gap between um, 20, today and about 2040. And if, if you can't produce solar and wind on this scale, which is absolutely not proven, then you get an even bigger gap, you know. And my guess would be that shipping would be quite low in the pecking order. But as, in the, as was discussed in the last panel, it's not really shipping, it's the charterers who are going to pay for this. So will they be prepared to pay eye-watering sums of money for solar and uh, solar fuels? Um, and if we just um, look at the, um, the, the, the electricity position, you, I mean, I won't dwell on this, but um, here's your 3% growth of electricity demand. Uh, Gasoline, we're just in the process of moving gasoline, which is 24% of oil demand, out of um, petrol into electricity. And as you can see from the pie chart, coal is already 36% of electricity generation. And the, uh, according to BP, there's going to be a cracking market for LNG to replace uh, coal in the IPPs around Asia. So, you know, you're going to have a... Shipping is going to have to work very hard. I, th I think if you're going to get a secure supply of green fuel, you're going to have to get a charterer to give you uh, a contract to underwrite that fuel supply with one of the very few suppliers who have it. Uh, you know, um, people like Yara claim to have some. Um, uh, we, we went through the, um, the, the options here and the, the big... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the fossil fuel options are pretty clear. And I was int very interested in the comments on um, ethane gas and the cheapness of that in the States, because I've not heard that discussed much as a possibility, but um, that, of course, um, is, uh, is a hydrocarbon too, but it has some, um, some slight benefits. And... Um, then you come to methanol, which you need carbon dioxide and you need electricity to produce the green methanol, uh, to synthesize it into the green methanol. And the, if you look at the, the plans, if you list all the plans, they're all tiny. You know, they're, they don't even fuel a ship. And um, hydrogen, fine. Um, it's you're minus 253 degrees. You're almost at absolute zero there. Um, and the Americans seem to have had quite a lot of trouble getting their space rocket off thanks to the hydrogen which kept escaping. So what happens in a, a, a cape-sized bulker, I've no idea. Um, and then the backstop is um, the, um, the, the nuclear, which uh, if you look at the energy density, uh, a, a litre um, 
a, a liter of heavy fuel oil is 41 um, uh, megawatt, megajoules per liter, and a liter of um, uranium-235 slightly enriched is 67.4 million. So this is seriously uh, a serious source of energy. And I would argue it's also a forward-looking source of energy. I mean, what you're trying to do with wind and solar is reproduce what nature's done over millions of years, nature and the, the, the rainforests, and you're trying to do that in little plants. And it is expensive if you take a look at it. I just did a calculation, um, and this container ship delivered in 2021, 200 tonnes uh, per day at 22 knots. Um, that means it would need 400 tonnes per day of green methanol, which um, has half the energy density of heavy fuel oil. Uh, and to produce 400 tonnes of green methanol, I reckon you need 36 offshore, 10 megawatt offshore wind turbines. And the um, investment cost there is $1.1 billion. And that would run one ship. And then you've got $100,000 a day um, to, um, uh, to, to pay the running expenses of that offshore. Now, solar might be a bit cheaper, but I did check those figures. And there was... There was a, a, wind, a very similar wind farm of that size off somewhere in the UK, Blackpool or somewhere. Half of that sold to a Danish finance company in 2017 for $660 million. So there's big, you know, this stuff is not going to be cheap. Um, and I, just going back again to, um, uh, to, to, to uh, Dr. Narvik's very fascinating presentation, if we look at the um, oil, the way oil prices have gone. Oil price has, has been highly volatile, but it has increased over the years. This is this, um, the, 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 the red line is the oil price at market prices, and this is inflation adjusted to 2021 prices. So, for example, in 1970, um, the price of oil in today's was about $11 a barrel. Um, the average, if 1950 to 70, was $16 a barrel. The average, 1973 to 2002, was $50 a barrel. The average, 2002 to 2022, was $80 a barrel. So we are, on average, we are truly in the age of high, you know, I think, you know, Dr. Narvik said we're coming into the age, where, the point where oil is the, the, the reference, take you over the reference from coal. I'd, I'd say, add to that the fact that for the last 20 years, we've been adjusting to very high oil prices. And if this grows at the, the trend uh, on that real um, price of oil, is 6% growth per annum since 1950, compared with 2.3% growth, 2.3% uh, US inflation. So oil has been going up twice as fast over 50 years as the US price index generally. And if we extrapolate that to 2022, uh, you get up to $160 a barrel. So whatever you do, you might as well do, if you're gonna do your, you know, if you're gonna bake your pie, you need to bake it at a temperature of $160 a tonne, you know? I mean, that, uh, $160 a barrel, that looks like um, 
that even if green fuel is very expensive, also heavy fuel oil is going to be expensive too. So your options uh, again, what's suddenly the economics of every single calculation that your finance director runs are going to be radically changed. The ships are going to look cheap. The fuel is going to look massively expensive. The, all those things that were 10 years, those energy saving things that were 10 years payout um, when you did the calculation two years ago, those will suddenly give you a, you know, they'll give you a, a very quick payback. Uh, at these sort of energy prices. Um, now, I'm going to have a very quick canter around nuclear and geothermal. Um, it, it used to be nuclear is unpopular today, but there was a time when very, you know, very respected people were predicting that tankers would have um, nuclear engines. And indeed, in the mid-60s, D.K. Ludwig, um, a very well-known uh, um, American entrepreneur was busy investing in nuclear ships. He didn't actually get there, but he was very keen on it. So it used to be taken seriously. Um, the option on the table at the moment is the molten salt reactor. Um, the advantages are you can build it in a factory. Um, it runs for 30 years without refueling, and you get most of the fuel back at the end of 30 years. It's safe because it works at ambient pressure, which means if the radiation, if the reactor shell fractures, um, you don't get nothing to escape because there's no difference of pressure. And um, if, in fact, it, it, the reactor um, overheats, the oil, the, the molten salt, which is just like water, drains down into the, the tank below uh, the reactor. So, and it solidifies, and the nuclear fuel is in the salt. Uh, they're testing these uh, in the States, uh, and they've just started... Um, a non-nuclear version of one of these plants on a test, and they're talking about uh, having a reactor available for the 20, early 2030s, and if you put it in eight or 10,000 biggest ships, you'd remove half the uh, shipping industry's emissions at a stroke. Uh, the other um, one is geothermal energy, which obviously doesn't affect shipping, but it might affect, it would certainly, if it happens would certainly affect the, um, the, the, the availability of green fuels. And um, this you can get from the chart what's going on. You're pumping down. You go down to, um, uh, I don't know, 10 kilometers where it's three or 400 degrees. You pump down cold water. It goes through fissures. It's a bit like, uh, like uh, fracking, really. And then you pump out the steam and hot water, uh, you know. Um, so the idea is you, you, you do that drilling in a, by a, um, a power station with suitable geology, and then you just pump the steam into the tur turbine and carry on as usual. You know, it's, uh, it's quite a, a simple way to proceed. Um, I think whatever you look at, the, the fleet investment is going to be risky, and there was a fair bit of discussion on the Newt's panel this morning. Um, my rough calculation, I haven't updated this for a year or so, but this is, this is the way that in shipbuilding we used to do the world um, investment calculations, is about three to four trillion dollars is going to be spent on ships. So it's a lot of money. And um, normally uh, the industry leaves it to the shipyards who build a ship based on last done. You're not going to be able to do that this time. 
somebody is going to have to do some serious development work. Um, and with three or four trillion dollars on the table, um, you know, it would be foolish not to. Uh, you might, um, you know, it would be a bit like making your, um, making your steak and kidney pie in a food processor, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the um, people are sitting on their hand. I mean, several people have mentioned it when I was chatting today. There's no order book to speak of for... Um, but this is order book as a percent of the fleet, nothing really for tankers and bulkers. Um, a surprisingly small number of container ships, considering the vast amounts of money they've made. So um, the, you know, the whole position will also be pushed forward by how fast trade grows. And one of the issues which is really quite worrying at the moment is that... Um, when you get um, when you look at price elasticity, which um, the, the the first speaker was referring to, um, one of the things economists do is to split the effect of, a, of an increase in prices into the income effect. So that is the the effect that that price increase has on the expenditure of the consumer and the substitution effect. In other words, if you can find something cheaper, you'll use it. And they both matter because the income effect for the sorts of things that are going on is quite likely to cause um, difficult demand and maybe recessions. And the um, substitution effect is great if you can find some. There was a massive substitution after the oil price went up in 1980 uh, because all the power stations were ready to switch from oil to coal. So... Um, the, 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 the oil trade fell from 1.5 billion tonnes to 900 million tonnes in about four years. I don't see anything like that around, um, which means it's going to be a very big income effect. It's going to hit consumers, these very high green energy prices, if we really believe it, that, they're going to, that, that we're going to go green, are going to hit consumers very hard. Um, and, of course, 40% of the cargo carried by the shipping industry today is fossil fuels. When you burn that, it's nearly half of the carbon emissions. Uh, so we come to this, this interesting point over the risky, um, why the investment is risky. And I'd say there's two sorts of risk. One is there's a bit of risk about whether you buy a dual-fuel engine. I know there was a few... Um, interesting doubts about whether there will be teething problems with the dual fuel engines but I, I mean MAN seem pretty confident about the ammonia engine which is supposed to be available in 2024 um, so I think you can move ahead on the dual fuel engines that's fine but of course you don't know whether you'll get the green fuel um, the more interesting question is in uh, about 20 32, 33, you're going to get this great spike of replacement. I mean, one time, at some point, these ships are going to be replaced. And um, if you get hustled into replacing those ships, you really want to be replacing them with state-of-the-art, which means if you, want, if you want to have some magic bullets available, like nuclear, it really needs to be on the table and ready to go by 2032, and, or some other equivalent and so the two elements in, in the strategy, um, of make, you know, you have to bake your pie in two separate parts, which is, gives you a much better result. You cook the meat first. And so you get started 
in the 2020s by sorting out your ship design, your electrical systems, and your dual fuel engines. And then hopefully you're ready to go, if by chance, maybe um, the Lone Ranger in the form of um, the molten salt reactor, you know, rides into town and solves the problem. Uh, well, stranger things have happened, you know. Uh, they, um, and of course, either way, these are my model projections of how, uh, carbon emissions under um, the three scenarios in the trade scenarios. I didn't go over, but they're in the slide. And they also vary the speed because you've always got the fallback that you can slow down. So the green one at the bottom is low trade growth and um, very uh, uh, only 10 knots steaming speed. And you get very close to zero that way. So, but it does assume you are producing a lot of green ships during the 2030s. And so, I, you know, I think the focus is not just to worry about your dual fuel engine, it's to worry about whether the industry and the world is investing enough to get the, the, the magic bullet for the early 2030s. Um, zero carbon voyage plan, well, very briefly, the deep sea I think for the 2020s, slow-speed diesel engines with all the usual suspects. Short sea, great opportunity to get into electric and batteries. A nice report from MIT just recently saying battery prices have fallen 50% and they're going to fall, fall another 50%. And indeed, the battery manufacturers, a lot of worry about the components, but it seems like the big battery manufacturers are really taking the recycling of components seriously. And so you might very well find that there isn't a sort of a, a sting in the tail of the batteries. So I think that gives you the, 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 the 2020s. Short sea has a very different strategy from deep sea. Uh, and then the technical performance in the 30s becomes absolutely crucial and economic viability, um, you really at this stage have to run your economic viability calculations. And for what it's worth, the numbers I've been running, I've been talking quite a lot to a company called Core Power, who, you know, they're working on this with, they have funding from the Gates Foundation, which is pretty respectable. And on those numbers, funnily enough, the nuclear, you can depreciate it over, you put layouts a lot at the beginning, but you can depreciate it very comfortably over 30 years, and it comes out as cheap as heavy fuel oil, strangely enough. It doesn't look bad at all. So I wouldn't write that one off just because you don't like the look of nuclear. Uh, I'm not going to go through this. I... Actually, strange... yeah. so, well, strangely enough, uh, to prove that history repeats itself, I did, first did this diagram with rather inferior graphics in 1979, <laughs> and it stood me in good stead. It just shows, you know, I never, never throw anything away. And all it does is show you that there's a lot of things you can do if you're clever enough with digital technology to really holistically um, sort out the, um, the performance of your ship on board, which is the stuff at the bottom, and the format of your logistics. Believe me, the industry is barely scratching the surface at the moment. I've been talking to companies about digital technology for 10 years now, and even the best ones are not really 
you know, very comfortable with this. But if you can make it work, it just works wonders. It will completely change your life. Uh, but, of course, this does take us into the... Oh, there's more. I'd forgotten. <laughs> well, nobody says it's easy, you know. You need to, if, you, if you've got yourself a tech checklist for this, you probably never finish your plan. Um, and this is another list of stuff that they're doing on the NYK2050 ship, which you can look at on the slide. Which brings me to the last bit, which is what really matters when you bake your pie is you need someone who's got as a good cook, who's got a feel for it. And although everybody loves to blame the IMO, I think it's the shipping companies and the masters and officers on the ships or the guys who are going to have to sort this one out. If they, don't, if they can't make it work, nobody will. Um, and I think, really, we ought to see governments in the industry at four levels. And I actually wrote a very long paper on this about six months ago, which I get many emails from German organizations asking me to patent my research. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, they, um, the, the, I think that possibly... The, it, um, Mr. Cruz started to talk about this uh, quite a lot, and this whole human thing and the resources was a real theme coming through, and this is where we've got, got to, and you need the right cook to make the pie, and, of course, you need the right gardeners to produce the right ingredients. And um, the problem of the industry today is that the average shipping company, um, this is slightly old data, it's 2017, has seven. This, I took out all the one-ship companies, though most of them were kosher companies, you know, people with one ship. Um, and, um, in fact, if anyone's got a cheap one, I'm looking to buy one, so <laughs> I can only afford one. <laughs> they, um, but the... Uh, the, uh, the, the, the real point here is that you really haven't got the depth of resources. And that is not the industry's fault. I mean, the main strategy for the last 30 years, required by the charterers but, and the cargo owners, is they want the cheapest freight. You know, I mean, big companies, you know, would go to a lot of trouble to get a centre barrel off the transport cost of oil. And that's, that's the truth of it. And whatever the president may say, that's what's been going on at the chartering level. And so I think really um, the, you know, the, the challenge is not just to lure good people into the industry, and they might stay a year or two. It's to build corporate environments where people can really enjoy it. You need to bring together the ship. There's more, far more people on the ships than there is in the office for most companies. And if you can bring those people together, give young engineers a chance to work together um, and to sp spend time on the ship doesn't really make any difference. I, I'm not going to tell you how you do it because you know how to do it. But there are companies in Hamburg that I know are doing this very well and I think that this is, um, you know, is the hardest trick of all. And, it's, and as any good cook will tell you, it's the most important ingredient in ba baking a really good pie. Um, the other thing you need is enormous persistence. I, I put together this, the world's top 10 um, shipping entrepreneurs since 1865. Um, and what <clears throat> these are people who all took a problem by the scruff of the neck and they, they solved it individually. They made, it, they made new technology work. Alfred Holt made the boiler work. When everyone else was happy with a 10-pound steam boiler, 
Alfred Holt wanted to do £60, and the government tried to stop him. Um, and everyone said, oh, no, it'll explode. But, of course, it was absolutely fine. He'd worked on the railways, so he knew it worked. Um, the last one is Malcolm McLean, who, you know, he, he spent... I read again the, that book, The Box, a couple of weekends ago, and I, at the end of it, I was absolutely exhausted just reading about what he had to do to make containerization work. I, I, I had a slide listing all the things which I took out because I knew I'd have run out of time. But I would, if anyone has ambitions to understand what you're going to have to do in the next 30 years in running a shipping company, read the box because it will, you know, he did all, he was, well, I'm not going to go through it, but um, that's, <laughs> sorry, yes, Nicholas, I do apologise. I'm getting a red flash now. Um, conclusions, very quickly. Um, I think after an era of little change, shipping companies need a, ver a versatile voyage plan for the next 25 years in a way that you really, really didn't need them before. I think ship propulsion will be a blend of internal combustion engines, batteries, fossil fuels, green fuels, and nuclear. Uh, several of the speakers on Newt's panel emphasised the need for flexibility but also the need to make new things work. The ability to harvest the di digital information about the performance of the ship, both on board and in a logistics system, is vital. And I think the new era will need to a new approach to shipping company governance in a way that hasn't really existed to date. So um, on that note, I would wish you all more success in making a steak and kidney pie than I have had. Thank you. <laughs> we'll put you in the middle. Uh, yes, yes. So, 